John Wilkin, I've got a couple of quotes for you. I've noticed even people who claim everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it look before they cross the road. Okay. We are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet on a very average star, but we can understand the universe that makes us something very special. Very good. Do you know who said that? Um, Stephen Hawking? Correct. This is out of I your didn't league. I know that. That was actually. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> You've read a brief history of time. I thought. I have, I have indeed. I have indeed. Don't forget, you can download Out of Your League uh, via Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify. You can get us on YouTube as well, where you can watch all the episodes, and you can get in touch as always at Super League on social media. Use the hashtag Out of Your League. We're with you every week, right up until just after the grand final. Stephen Hawking. You didn't think I'd get that, Will? I didn't think you. No, get that it. was a that was a trap. <laughs> <laughs> it was a trap. What Will was trying to do was prove I hadn't read a book which I have read. <laughs> do you know what else um, he said? He said, we only have to look at ourselves to see how intelligent life might develop into something we wouldn't want to meet. Two people I do want to meet. <laughs> One we've already <laughs> met. Well, wow. Wow. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> Mr. I said Mr. Damien Hughes, Professor Damien Hughes. I think oh, we should use that should. Uh, terminology, shouldn't we? Uh, <laughs> welcome back, Damien, because we've spoken to you before. Great yeah. to have you with us. And Mr. Kevin Brown. Mistress Mister. Yeah, no, I'm not a bit of a letter. Not, <laughs> <professor. laughs> not a professor yet. Can we, can we get to professor status? Never. Never? Never. No. Never, ever. <laughs> Never, just, ever. Just as simple as that. Um, Damien, for those who don't know, is an international speaker, author of a lot of best-selling books, one of which... <laughs> Will goes to get book. Oh. Thanks for the commentary, John. I actually brought this down with me. The Winning Mindset, which is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Hold it up to that camera there. There's a few, Damien, aren't there? Which, I don't know which Thanks one you're so. most proud of, but Liquid Leadership, Liquid Thinking, The Winning Mindset, The Barcelona Way, many, many. Which one are you most proud of, by the way? Um, I quite like that one. Yeah? I'm proud of that one. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I might get him to sign that one for me. We'll go. Oh, thank you. Um, Damien has been praised by the likes of Sir Richard Branson, Muhammad Ali, Tiger Woods, Johnny Wilkinson, Sir Alex Ferguson. I want to start, Damien, with a tweet from you today. Go on. Which read, the world seems to have too many people trying to teach and not enough people trying to learn. Mm. Yeah. Elaborate. Well, it was a response uh, to social media. I've been working with the Scotland rugby um, guys uh, as they go for the in rugby union, as they go for this autumn's World Cup, and Sean uh, White out in Japan, yeah, and Sean, Sean's been up there, and uh, it was just an interesting response. It was a lot of the emotion. So they played on Saturday night and had a pretty poor performance uh, in the first warm-up game, and there was an awful lot of sort of criticism being aimed at the coaches and uh, some of the players, and some of it, the bits I read were quite personal, and. Um, I think, having read some of the responses from the coaches, I thought they were quite measured. And uh, it seems to be an awful lot of people telling them what they should be doing rather than trying to understand and learn what the coaches were actually trying to do. Why does criticism always take a personal slant? Why, why does it? Like, why do people choose to make it personal? Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. it's, like, if, you, if you were to criticise somebody's philosophy, that's, well, that's a matter of conjecture, isn't it? You can say, well, I disagree with the style that you're trying to do, but some of it was, uh, you know, even referring to some of these coaches as deluded or being like living in a fairyland and things like that. And like having seen these coaches respond in quite measured, calm ways and try to explain and articulate um, lots of different styles. So it was more an interesting response to the fact that yeah. there was an awful lot of people telling them what you should be doing rather than trying to understand. Just, just explain for cool. people watching, people listening who haven't read the books, yeah, you yeah, should do, sure. because they're brilliant. Uh, the, your five steps to a winning mindset as sort of succinctly as you can do. <laughs> uh, well, what I did was, um, I, so I was asked to go and meet an awful lot of sports coaches around the world um, and have a look at their methodologies about how they go about doing it. And what I found was, just observing a lot of these coaches, the best ones, there was five things that were consistently present from all these coaches, whether it was basketball, boxing, rugby league, football, swimming... Aussie rules football, these coaches were doing pretty much five things consistently and I gave it the acronym STEPS just because it to help it make it more memorable. So they kept things really simple. They didn't claim to have the answers. They got the players to think for themselves rather than just tell them what to do. They were emotionally intelligent, so they recognised you were dealing with people that just happened to play sport. They were very practical. There wasn't a lot of jargon in the way that they spoke and they were great storytellers. So they understood that storytelling was a great way of coaching and getting a point across. 
So it was those five things that you'll see pretty much present with all great coaches. They seem to keep keep playing them almost on a carousel, that their sessions seem to be around that. So I wanted to write a book that tried to make it accessible for anyone, whatever their domain, whether they were in teaching, whether it was in business, whether it was dealing with your own kids, about, well, what could I do that could take the same methodologies and show some of the psychology behind it of this is why it works. You, you two have all come across Damien before, haven't you? Both yeah, of you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. you've worked with, what, Sales Sharks, Warrington, England Rugby League, GB Rugby League. Yeah. Kev, what were your first memories of meeting Damien? How much did he help you? It was a brief. It was a brief encounter yeah. with sports the group, and it was about the steps and the honesty and, and and the simplicity of stuff. Especially the bigger game, you always think, um, you know, you've got to do something different. And this is what me and John were speaking about before. Sometimes, and most times, the, the the simple, basic way is is the best way. You just need to do that better. And I've I've had plenty of psychologists and and people trying to help through rugby. And and I think Wayne Bennett's been the best coach I've had, and he had one with him sort of coaching him and coaching the team all the time and as soon as we went into camp we filled the form it was 150 questions so it was quite painful but the outcome it labelled you in a term of can't remember them all but I was a thinker enforcer and it not an enforcer like I'm going to beat you up or anything but <laughs> like a leader and, and, and you got put into these sort of subgroups and and he treated you different um, where I remember Mark Percival was labelled a mozzie so he, he didn't think about anything, he was all over the place. And so we give him very little information, he just said play, because as yeah. soon as he put that information into his head, he was thinking, oh, I can't do it. But as soon as he just played, where I needed the information and then I needed to express to my teammates and, and make everyone feel comfortable, and then I felt comfortable. So um, it was probably when, I think it was Dr Phil who we had, he taught us so much and I got so much out of that in terms of not just for the field, my mental health away from it, and I've never struggled, but it, it was just a tool and, and simple tools about clicking our things and stuff. Whenever you had a negative thought, you could uh, you can't outthink a negative thought. He always said, do a physical action. Mm. And it's been great for me. Mm. My missus is sick of me clicking my fingers now. Like, <laughs> is that your cue? That's my yeah. cue. So if I'm ever struggling, just, I'm, not, I'm not going <laughs> to keep it. Do, do, no. you, do you guys think that everyone can adopt a, a winning mindset? Is it, is, it physically, is it feasible for everyone? Yeah, I, no, no, I, from, from my perspective, I think of course it is. So I think there's certain habits and disciplines in life, um, you know, the strategies that, that Damien may talk about in, this, this, in, his, in, in all of your books, actually, I think are things that can be learned and can be, through discipline and through process, can be, become part of your life. Um, that being said, there's all sorts of, of things that interrupt that being the case, isn't there? Yeah. You know, and it's very hard to revisit some. You know, when you, you're on in your everyday life, you, you very rarely. It's it, what we just had a chat about. Is it's easy to retrospectively look at something, analyze it, and then go, "We should have done it like this," and try and change your behaviours. Yeah. Then, I think it's so difficult to change those behaviours in the present. You know, usually it's yeah, retrospective. We try and do it. At, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think I, so. I think. To answer that question, it almost there's a there's a question beforehand of how open are you to want to do something different? Because if you're not and you've got no interest in that, your improvements are, are going to be really quite minimal. So, you know, like Kevin, John will give you examples of teammates that you've had where they just so you might have somebody come in and they just won't have a bat of it. They're just not interested, and therefore there's no point in wasting your time trying to engage people like that because. Mm -hmm. They don't want to engage. They've already made up their mind. It'll be a waste of time. But a lot of those people will never live their potential because they're not open to it and because they, they can't adopt that mindset. There must be thousands of sportsmen and women who could deliver things on the pitch which they never will do because of that. Yeah, but I think it's always important to... So I think people can get caught up in the idea of I can achieve anything and the reality is you can't, but you can get better from where your starting position is. So it's not about saying that we could win the 100 metres in the Olympic Games because there's a base level of talent that would get you on that starting line. But you can get faster from wherever you start from if you're open to looking at different ways of doing it. So you're right that there's a lot of people sort of not tapping into their full potential often because they're closed in the way that they want to approach it. Is that common in rugby league, guys? For, for it, people not, just not to be open to it? They are, phew, massive, that. massively common. And, and, and you hear people say, well, I've always done it like this and it's always worked for me. But 
you, you, you they're still having bad games every now and again. So it's it's they're not perfect. No one's perfect, you know. Sam Burgess, Andy Farrell, they were never perfect. But I think all the best players are open to to reaching the potential. And I think if you know, like you say, everyone's got a different level where they can reach. But if you're always open to different things, then you can reach your potential. And it's only probably in the last part of my career that psychology's become a big thing. And you know how, how much your brain can help you. And I think more in England than anywhere, we play that many games. Well, we were speaking before about how you can just get mentally fatigued after 20 rounds, 30 rounds, mm-hmm. uh, because you've not had a break. And, and just little simple things that you can do can, can help you. So and Do you think that helps the, the older that you get and you guys are, what, well, mid, mid to late 30s? No, I was going to say that. I think you have to be a certain age. I think there's an age in your career where physically everything's right. But you don't have the mental capacity to because you can be rely, but you can rely on the physicality then. Well, when you're younger. Yeah, yeah. Physicality is probably your asset when you're a younger athlete, and and the mental side of the game, your, your mental approach to the game, to preparing to play, to performing, to reaching your potential. I just don't think it's there. Um, the older you get, there's probably a sweet spot in your career where physically and mentally you're you're open to reaching your potential. You understand the impacts of of mental preparation of of leadership, of, 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 of being like a, an architect of, for, the, for the culture of your team. And then there's a point where, probably where I'm at now, where mentally my approach is, is as sharp as it's been in terms yeah. of how I understand what I need to do. But physically, I'm just probably not capable of doing it. And, I, th- uh, I think also yeah. as well, when you're a bit younger, there's a bit of fear about you that you don't want to look like, you want to look confident, you want to look like you know what you're doing. So you, you're a bit afraid of going, do you know what I could do with a bit of help or because mm-hmm. you're trying to perceive that you've you've got it all and you're ready to go but it's only till you get a bit older that you know it's not a sign of weakness that do you know what I was, I was really nervous before that big game is there anything I could have done before that because the amount of people you speak to and oh was you nervous before the game no 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 definitely not mm-hmm. and you can see them throwing up in the corner or you, you know and and they're lying to try and convince themselves that, mm. that they don't need help. And, and like John says, there is a, a really happy medium where, you, where they both meet and, and you want to get better. Mm. So surely from a coaching point of view then, that would if I'm thinking, OK, I'm a coach and I want to get the best out of my players at all ages, to be able to tap into a 21-year-old kid who's clearly got the potential on the pitch for whatever sport he's playing, she's playing, that you then are unable to unlock that mindset side of them in their 20s. Yeah. What kind of beast could you unleash then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the, the, so the way I often encourage players, but more coaches to think about it is, think about it as four four pillars. So you go physically, tactical, technical. And that's where most coaches then go, right, if, they, if they're good enough and I've given them a game plan and I know they've got the right skills, and they stop thinking, and you go, but the fourth pillar, psychological, can be just, the, you know, like, it's almost like having a wobbly table. If, if you need all four of them there, if you're missing one, they become unstable, so you put them under pressure, and you don't. You're not confident they can maintain the technical, the tactical, or the physical prowess. Mm. So you need all four. And when you get coaches to start investing the time in those areas equally, that's where you start to tap into really healthy environments. And who are the best exponents of coaching-wise of that? You know those pillars. Who, who are the best coaches you've seen embed those pillars? I've seen I've seen quite a few. Like I've seen um, like boxing's always a really good one. That um, I, so I did a I did a biography many years ago of Tommy Hearns, who was like a five weight world champion that went through um, uh, through the divisions in the seventies and eighties. And I went out to Detroit um, to go meet his coach, was a man called Emmanuel Stewart, and he subsequently coached like Lennox Lewis when he was the heavyweight title uh, champion. And he was fantastic at it. That that he that he was probably, and I say this with the greatest respect, probably one of the least educated men I'd ever met. But he was the most street smart by a million miles because mm. he'd done it for forty years at the hard end. And he gave me a great distinction once. He said, "I don't coach boxers. I coach men that just happen to box." And it was very much around putting the person at the heart of it, treating with respect, dignity, making them feel welcome. You can make a mistake. I'm not going to be hammering you for doing it. And he created that sort of emotional, intelligent environment where young boys, as it was in this case, could, could come in, feel safe within his company. And then therefore, de- and he used to then say, I've got millions of dollars worth of information to give you, but I need to create the environment to give you that information. And you get these young lads that weren't educated in any level opened up to quite complex uh, uh, examples. So I've seen it in individual sports like that. And then in team sports, somebody like, 
like people, I did a book on Ferguson years ago, mm -hmm. and I think he was very good at it, putting like, there's the assumption of him with the hairdryer and things like that, but you speak to a lot of players that talk about him, they all talk about the dignity, the respect, the decency of him was really quite powerful. And, and all of this is dependent on society, isn't it? Which is a, which is a big topic. And I'm interested, Damien, with the books that you've written over the years. And I think yep. Your first one was sort of 2006, seven something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. about, yeah. So, so you know, going, going back to then, society's changed massively. Now, the world that we live in today is an Instagram world. Yeah. Uh, what What do you make of the the world that we that we live today with with these principles? Yeah. Well, I'm often um, loathe to to go down the route of talking about millennials or different generations because I don't feel like we've evolved quick enough to make any changes. I think mm -hmm. inherent decency and treating people with respect and kindness and and, and, and essentially putting people at the heart of what you do are timeless values that I feel are still there. I, like, I get your point about sometimes, you know, like when England under-17s, the football won the World Cup and they all turn the shirts around to see the name on it and mm. things like that, and you see that, like, the cult of the egotist. Mm -hmm. um, there's an, but there's an obsession to impress. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, but then... and. and I've read a few quotes from sort of American sports stars that say, you know, like, don't get caught up with the, the, these images of success when you don't see all the hard work that goes in underneath it, which goes back a little bit to that, that quote that you read out that I tweeted about today, this idea of you've got people that are trying to explain their methodology and because you don't get the outcome, people immediately start labelling them fantasists or, or, or criticising them. So I think we're a bit too quick. I think our patience levels... Um, are a little bit shorter than they were generationally, just because everything is instant. If you want an answer, you Google it, you get the response. So I think we're not prepared to value people working hard and for success to take a while and to come. One thing I think really interests me, and it's, I think it's great that Kev's here for, to discuss this as well, is that feeds into this, this sort of short-termism that life is. Instant yeah. feedback, instant gratification, maybe quick solutions to a short problem. and Corner cutting, that's what we are. Well, no, it's not corner cutting. I'm not trying to say that's what it is, but it's in a lot of the philosophies and things that you speak about, it, it would be perceived that, that there's a time period needed in some cases, in a coaching sense to, you know, in your book yeah. of Barcelona where we talk about this long-held culture that, that sort of has a, a long period yeah. of time. How do you then in a short-term environment like sport, help get those things in place? So often, a lot. So where I prefer to work is with the coaches as opposed to just the playing group. So I'm available to help players if they want them, but I'd rather work with the coaches because I feel that they're the ones with real credibility. So I often say, if I stand up in front of a room full of players, depending on my relationship with the group, 75% of them might buy into it, but you'll get 25% that'll go. I'm not having this. Yeah, yeah. Whereas when the coach stands up and delivers the same message because he picks the team, 95% of the room will buy into it and do what he says. So I prefer working with the coaches and that's where often a lot of the work is done well before they're ever standing in front of a group. So for a coach that gets appointed, I can say, make sure you, that you interview the guys that have appointed you. So get patience from them, get them to buy into the process yeah. because it won't happen quickly, it won't happen uh, instantly. And that's where... Like you see the stats, don't you? Like I know the stats in football rather than rugby league, but like 55% of managers are sat within the first 16 months of doing the job, and the vast majority of them never get another shot at it again. So that encourages this idea of short-termism: just go and try and get results rather than build for the long term. Yeah, it's one of the companies. It's probably a myth, isn't it? In football, like there's the certain behaviours that have always existed. Football's one of the worst for me. Like I look at football and think some of the decisions that are made purely based on emotion or sentiment or this perceived wisdom about a certain action, like bringing in a particular manager who's likely to keep you up or, you know, sacking somebody in such a short period of time. Yeah. It's like mental concepts for me. But I've seen this year, Kev, with, with Lee, in terms of their approach to this season, that in, in a different way, short-term sort of approach, haven't they? Because they, they've heavily recruited towards the back end of the year. To, so started off with a relatively skinny squad and heavily recruited towards the back the, end of the year. So, so obviously the owner pulled back. Um, they threw everything at it a couple of years ago. They bought all these superstars and went, go and win the title. 
couldn't do it. I think Marwan Kukash did the same at Salford. Didn't work. This year he pulled right back and they had nine players in pre-season. And I, I said to a couple of lads how refreshing it was that them, that foundation that you speak about, it was all about playing for the jersey, being honest. It's going to take a process of time to get to where they want to be. And now they've added quality through the year that fit with that group rather than putting a lot of individual players together yeah. and try and forget about the group. So they've done it that way mm -hmm. and they've had the best season that they've had. No one would have given them a chance to, to no. finish in the top five. And now all of a sudden they're talking about promotion. So I don't think it's just Lee who have shown the blueprint. I think any sporting organisation, if they've got the foundations of, of honesty where you can pull your mates up, and, and everyone's accountable, not just you know the younger players who are easy targets. I, I yeah. think that's massive, um, and I just think that long-term planning and not being emotional over results, which everyone's guilty of that. After a game, you say something, or and I think social media is massive about it. When we started playing, you got called on the fans, then you go home, yeah. and you wouldn't hear anything else. You go home now, you switch your phone on, you're getting it on Facebook, Instagram, social. Uh, Twitter, you can't avoid it. No. So when people say, don't look at what fans say, you used to have to avoid a fans forum. Now you simply cannot avoid it. So I think the young players now, we should probably do something for them in terms of this is how you, you know, when you get abused, because you are, no matter how good you're going to be, you're going to get abused and don't have a couple of drinks and abuse them back <laughs> should be a rule number one that the RFL or a football <laughs> association put into everyone's contract I asked like, this sounds like a big name job but I'll, I'll explain the concept there was a lad last year with uh, Scotland who I got a message off him and he said he'd, just be, he'd been called up for, in the squad and he, and he phoned me up and he said would you come and I went to meet him and he showed me his Twitter feed and it was vile, like it was pretty, like uh, somebody else should have been picked, not him, according to these people. But it was all proper vile abuse, and it bothered him. He admitted yeah. that he went out for his club and he was trying to do something special. And he said, "I was thinking of these people of how to prove them wrong." Mm -hmm. And he said, "Then they had a disaster of a game." So the week after, I found myself in uh, company with um, J.K. Rowling's husband. Right. And I asked him, I thought, I thought, well, she's pretty prolific on social media. So I asked him, I said, how does your wife deal with it? I imagine she, and he said, oh, you want to see the abuse. And she came to the idea where he said, she enjoys social media, but not through her. So I said, so if you see J.K. Rowling's account, she doesn't go near it. So she'll post official stuff, but she's got a private account that only family and friends know. So she can enjoy social media yeah. without anybody getting access to yeah the way it's going because obviously when I, I i left witness and went to warrington um you know i got that much abuse i just came off it all and i didn't want to come off it all because i had a lot of friends in australia and new zealand were and, and that's how i sort of kept in touch with them all so i came off it and um I've, i just have instagram now which right. is, is is so much better in terms of avoiding abuse is but, it oh well Relatively. Uh, relatively, you're not you're not speaking as much. And when you put something to your kid, uh, you don't really get as much abuse. It's a bit there's a line, and you know there's only a few people want to cross that one. But um, I've just found it refreshing having time off. But I think it's sad that you know the social media is really good, and I think we should embrace it because it's a really good tool. But when it's almost like. Um, Anyone can say what they want on there, and they wouldn't say it, you know, if he was just down yeah. in the car park. Yeah, or, yeah. But then a lot of the time, I always tell myself now because I've had that much abuse over the probably last four or five years that when I actually look into the accounts, I would never care if I was sat at the side of them and they said it. I, it just wouldn't bother me. But yeah. when you're reading it and you think, on home, isn't it? Yeah, 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 and you think I shouldn't. Yeah, but it does affect you. But that's yeah. a fascinating topic because you know, for example, you look at John Wilkins' uh, Instagram account. It's this again. It goes back to this obsession to impress. So mm. Pictures of my dogs in an artisan coffee shop. It, you know, mm. it's pathetic. And I, can, and I encourage people to <laughs> go out of their way to, no, to troll Will's, John Wilkins. Will's doing this. He, he thrives he off the stuff. I got rid of it all the same about two two years ago, three years ago. I got rid of everything. Um, one one the reason. Why? It's because I was spending my time looking at other people's lives. And it was like, I had a disepiphany on the toilet. I sat on the toilet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> probably sat on the toilet just looking at pictures of other people doing good stuff. And then almost feeling like my day was bad. And I was like, this is crazy. Well, let's tap into that because, Damien, where does that 
where does that mentality come from? Firstly, the troll mentality. Was it always present before the days of social media and, and Instagram? Yeah, and and so. why is it intensified so much now? And, and particularly the, the anonymity behind it. Yeah, and I think that gives you the safety. I mean, it, it is a fascinating topic because the way we've tried to, ex the way I try to explain it to young players is because you don't want like this particular lad when he showed me his Twitter feed, and you go, "You're a 24 year old lad." So to say, don't go on it. You go, but you've grown up on it. You, mm. you, it's your generation. So why should you limit yourself for something that could be quite enjoyable? And mm. in this lad's case, he was trying to build a business on the back of it as well. So like using his following. And so the way we try to explain it to them is we introduce them to the Dunning-Kruger law. And the Dunning-Kruger is named after a couple of psychologists um, that said, if you're stupid, you're too stupid to know just how stupid you are. <laughs> so the idea is, when we say, apply that law. So if you wanted to, a bit like Kev said, go and have a look at the people writing this abuse to mm. you. And you'll find that, that when somebody says, oh, I, you know, I could have played better than Kev did at weekend, you go, if you look at the lad, he's too stupid to realise how talented Kev is and how hard the sport is. Yeah, was it? But he's too stupid to understand the demands of what you're actually trying to execute to yeah. be able to make a rational decision. So you go, why would you want to give validity to... Now, if it was your coach or... Like 100%. your partner or people that didn't mm. appreciate the value and the hard work and the effort it's taken to get where you are in your career, and they said, I could have done better than that, you'd listen. Yeah. But if it's a stranger that has got no concept of how hard what you're trying to execute I'm, I'm is, why would that be irrelevant? I'm convinced there's young players coming through now who play poor, but as long as their image looks good mm. on social media, they're happy. Were, uh, it's frightening, but I'm convinced. Yeah. I'm 100% yeah. convinced. Well, that's, you think that's the priority? That the image is the main wow. thing rather yeah. than the performance. Yeah, yeah. Percep the perception of being a professional sportsman is 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 more attractive than the reality. The reality of being a professional sportsman is every day is hard work. It's hard work mm. from start to finish. Like it's discipline. It's um, it's physically, mentally batters you down. It's rewarding and and excruciatingly painful in the same. No, but but it worries me that young professional people would idolise the the material gain of being a sportsman than the essence of it. The essence of it is deeper than that for me. Like I've always wanted to compete. I'd compete if I didn't get paid to compete. Yeah. It's easy retrospectively now. Easy for me to say I. I'd play rugby if I didn't get paid, but I would. I mm. would have done. I know I would have done. Yeah, yeah. And I found it interesting. There was an ASICS advert. It was, it was years ago, but it really, it like stuck with me, and it's always stuck with me. And it's be about. Can the you game. say this with your sponsorship with New Balance? Are you sure you well, want to go down? <laughs> it's fine. It's absolutely <laughs> fine. New Balance are better trainers, but it was a great <laughs> advert. <laughs> um, it said, "Be about the days that people don't see, not the days that they do." And to me, I thought, wow, that's like, that was powerful. You know, just for an advert that you think, oh, and I watched it and I was like, whoa, like that's, like that's the career in rugby. Mm. And, and yeah. you know, you spoke about sources of wisdom in your career. The only people I would ever listen to in my career are the people who see, see the days that don't matter. Yeah. The days that don't matter for me. I'll take judgment off them every day. And they're the ones who, when they criticise me, when I've been criticised, are the only people in my life who I'd listen to. See, John is yeah. one of these people, though, that, that as much as he'll deny this, he, the abuse, you know, oh, water off a duck's back and so on, but it does really get to him, and I can see it, and I know it does. But in terms, <laughs> in, in terms, it does, it's true, that's why he's laughing, it was a nervous laugh. It, 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 in, ter in terms of abuse, and, and we look at um, the, the level of abuse, and in the words of David Brent, we're all in our 30s here, aren't we? Uh, just about. And for me, when you look at, look at kids teens, 14, 15, 16 upwards, that, that, that when, you, when you actually look at it, I, I find it quite refreshing because the, I, I like to know that there are freaks out there because if it was all very <laughs> praiseful and so on and praiseworthy, it would be quite a boring place to live, wouldn't it? But when you look at some of the level of abuse and how intense it is, there seems to be, one, no remorse and no line these yeah. days, more so than there, there ever was 10, 15 years ago when I was growing up. Yeah, but I also think it's like, so, like when you're driving a car and the abuse that people, like the way people behave in the cocoon of a car was, if, can you imagine walking down the street and like, you fucking mm. wanker, yeah, yeah. somebody, because there's a consequence that they might stick one on you. <laughs> it's if the you safety, walk, but, it's the yeah, so it's like that safety of, well, if I'm online, then I can 
and I can drop the C-bomb on you. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that there's no second order... Consequences. Order. Yeah, so I, so I often talk to people about this idea of second order consequences. So I'll say, you're welcome... So if I'm working with someone, I'll say, you're welcome to challenge me, disagree with me. We can, in, if, you, if you want more information, we can have that discussion. And you're welcome to do that, and we'll do it polite and respectful, and hopefully we both walk away. But if you choose to say nothing, you don't get to walk out of here and complain about our meeting. You don't get to walk out of here and say, oh, that was shit. Because you go, but you didn't give me the chance to, to make any amends. And it's always the second order consequences. Mm-hmm. We need to understand that. I, that if I abuse you, there's a consequence that you might come and take action against me. And what online does is there's no second order consequence. I can do it. And I know that nobody's going to call me out. Nobody. I, I think and I hope it'll go full circle because it's really refreshing now when you do see someone coming through who's full of integrity, full of hard work and isn't bothered, isn't image conscious. We've got a kid at um, Warrington, Joe Philbin, not one bit bothered, just goes hard all the time. And I think Owen Farrell's a little bit similar. He's just ultra competitive, not really bothered about social media. And I'm hoping it'll come back and that'll be the trend. Well, realistically, the guys who you speak about who are image conscious, very rarely, for me, uh, the most competent people. It, it, in some ways, the players who I've played with who've, who've clung on to their profile before they had it or tried to enhance the profile before they had it are the ones who've not had any longevity in the sport. Yep. You know, and, and Because they've already fallen short. They've already accepted the trappings of being in the public eye. And the reality of, like I said, what we do is, is just hard work. Mm. And then you don't see any of it. People don't see any of it, do they? Yeah, no. They don't understand it. I can't tell you. I can't tell you to understand my life. Like I couldn't give you enough information for you to be able to under, understand. Remember years it. ago um, when Solskjaer was uh, the reserve team coach at United, um, and I got to know him a little bit during that period. And uh, he got, is that another name you just dropped? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. I've got to ask it down here. <laughs> go on, go on. But, but I'll give you context because at the time he was struggling with this transition of being a coach with this next generation coming through. So his reserve team coaching was like meeting kids and, and he, he made a great comment where he said he said what I'm realising is some of these kids like being a footballer they just don't like playing football because mm. he was saying to them yeah, he said he'd yeah. come in and he'd say oh did you watch the Champions League last night no no I didn't know it was on or you know the idea of staying behind and he'd say I'll oh, do shooting practice with you oh no I've got to get off and he said it, it came like as a bit of a dawning moment for him that he'd lived in a cocoon of loving the sport and then meeting kids mm. that were coming through that mm. actually weren't that bothered well, that's about a, it. That's another common phrase, put the ball away. You know, like the amount of times you do start speaking about rugby as a, as a professional rugby player and, and you might be having a chat, you'll, you'll be heckled by one of your teammates, put the ball away, you dickhead, you know. <laughs> and um, it, 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 that is Steve another Price. trend. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it, it, is a mindset then something that you you can actually crack and complete? Or, or, or is it something that, um, you know, is it something really that's quite simple because there is a formula to it? Is it something that you need to train? Can, can you live, essentially what I'm trying to ask is, can you live the perfect life and a carefree life because you've cracked that? No, I don't think, no. And I think what I'd say is that there's no formula to any of this stuff as well. We're all complex But the creatures. books always try and make it so formulaic. Yeah, and, and again, that... that if there was anyone listening, I'd often say, treat anything like that with real caution when somebody tells you it's simple, when somebody tells you that this is easy or this is a formula. Mm-hmm. Treat it with caution because there's no formulas out there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that... If, if There's no one-size-fits-all that does work. And that's why it, it has to be very much person-centred. Mm-hmm. You, start from under, you, you start from the inside out. You work out what the person's got, how they structure, how they view the world, and then try and help them navigate it from that position rather than going from outside in and tell them what they should be doing and how they should be thinking or feeling. Because in the same sense of, of how Instagram has is, is intensified and taken over everyone's lives in the last, what, five years, something like that, for me it seems every time you walk into uh, a bookshop or you go into an airport and you go into a WH Smith's, it's, there is a wall of self-help books, yep. self-help authors. I mean, you've been in the game a long time, but do you think almost that there are, there are too many, there are too many conflicting, contradicting ideas that actually this is making it a muddle for everyone to try and even simplify it in their own heads? Yeah, very much, yeah. The, um, the, 
and you're right. I, I, I treat it with caution because because I, I like writing the books, I like doing the research and trying to and trying to make it evidence based. Um, because I think people do want the sense that if I want to give this a go, I want to have some kind of confidence that this has been well researched. This isn't just mm. like some pop psychology. Somebody just giving me an idea off a shelf or like. Like when I go into teams, like one of my bigger versions is gimmickry. I often say, be careful of any of anybody that's using a gimmick. If it's not something that they're prepared to go back and use repeatedly, it just ends up being a gimmick. You know, like I'd, I'd, like I'd even say when you go into clubs and they have like these quotes, quotes on the, the walls, walls the and I always get that off. But at top top level clubs, have yeah, that. they have it, and they go like, "Winners never quit, quitters never win," and you go, "Well, sometimes they do." <laughs> yeah. or, or what message are you giving there that it's all contradictory and but people do it without necessarily thinking about yeah. the impact I of guess there's a line though isn't there between gimmickry you know quotes on a wall for example might oh look there's one behind us right here dark and true and tender is the north uh, thank you Northern Monk for letting us use the uh, facilities again lovely beer by the way we cracked up yeah, the beer down there absolutely yeah. um, no but in, in all seriousness quotes and, and gimmickry there is that side that perhaps if you're in a tunnel I don't know you guys tell me if you were in a tunnel and you, you saw some quotes on a wall and it kind of just made you just think in a slightly different way before you ran out into a picture no, would that have any impact never, at all? Never, never ever. not once in my career have I walked out of a tunnel looked at words and you like thought, quotes though? No, I, I, like, no. I like quotes and that, not often do I um, walk out in a tunnel and see something that instantly inspires me but you know the um, Lombardi, he's come up with some crackers, and and, and I have <laughs> such a rugby league. Lombardi's I, come up with some crackers. He's, he's come up with some belters, and, and just to fail to prefer and prefer to fail, sure, and, yeah. and little ones like that that just reinforce what I've always thought. Got my got yeah, me. yeah, yeah. Because you know I'm not the most talented, but I always try no. and think I've worked as hard as I possibly could to reach the top of me. Yeah, you know potential. So stuff like that just reinforces to me that you know there's other people who's done fantastically well in the careers that, you know, have lived by the same kind of theory. So I, I don't discount all quotes. Some no. quotes are absolute But I'd also but... say it's an, individ- it's an individual thing, isn't it? Mm. So that the fact that a number of quotes could mean the same thing to a group of 30 blokes and, and, and then therefore each member extracts something. You could have 10 quotes on a wall and somebody would look at one of them and go, oh, that's the one. Yeah, you know, yeah. That means something to me. So therefore, the understanding of like the self-awareness for an athlete comes through you you have to understand that on your own it's not a team thing for me that the I, knew indi- that, I knew that Wilkin would be offended no, by the, the no, no, the, ex- the exploration of my mind is my responsibility it's not my yeah. teammates it's not a team thing is it mm. and, yeah. I, and I often think sometimes what we're trying to do is stimulate behaviour in sport by writing things on a wall and for me that just but that's it though isn't yeah, it yeah. if that's not for you yeah, it's not yeah. for you, Walk but on. if that works well, we for had, one person... In, in the gym, we had Friedrich Nietzsche, the, you know, the... No. <laughs> <laughs> he was like a philosopher from the 1800s who went on to actually, they reckon, influence sort of far-right sort of thinking in, in Germany, yeah. which is, it, that's probably contentious yeah. in itself. But I found it ironic that we had this on the wall, you know, this quote from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, but... Um, I, I just I find words are really useful. I get I know what you're saying, Kev. Like, I, I do find words really useful and... and, and like you said, if, if those words are there and they're helping someone, then fair play. And, and but helped. repetition in sport and, right, people imitate each other. So somebody saw words on a wall, thought, we need three words to describe us. Then another team thought, you're honest, disciplined, tough, right, let's put that on the wall. Let's have a session and we'll get to these three words. Ultimately, those three words, what do they mean? It's actions, it's mm. disciplines, yeah. it's things, it's not words, it's things that matter. Mm. I remember going to Nosley Road and, and the, I think the change room was either pink or brown <laughs> yeah. or something yeah. and it had been painted purposely to, to demotivate suppress us. Suppress mood. Yeah. So we had a motivational tool, right, they're trying to suppress us here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, let's go out. And, and it was the opposite effect, but I think everyone's trying to get that extra 1% yeah. Yeah, exactly. over. And, and I get the quotes. Sometimes I think we're a bit quote happy, and you know that's another social media tool. You yeah, well, exactly, and that's up. what I was asking Kev to Damien was, and this is by no means don't get me wrong, but no, literally no, what you do because your your books are fantastic, but it has become a fad, it has become fashionable. This this lifestyle, mindfulness, mindset, 
Yeah. This wasn't a rap when I was growing up. That wasn't accessible. That wasn't, that wasn't fat. forced down your throat. It's forced down your throat now. And it, and no, which, may be, which may be great. People are more self-aware. Well, I think you're mistaken. No, but is that what it is? People are more self-aware. Well, there you go. You may have answered. It, is it, right, if purely, right, if I look, look at this in a business perspective, it's supply and demand. Like, the, the demand, it has to be there for this information. Books don't sell themselves. People buy these books because they're interested. Now, so why that, have we become more self-aware? Because I think... You know, that's the way that we're, we're evolving over time. We, we, we understand the implications of mental health. We talk about it. People want to be more productive. Um, I think there's a journey of self-awareness. We don't understand the human mind. I think that's one of the things that we're trying to get to grips with. Yeah. I think that's maybe... We've had a long time uh, as, uh, since apes to understand that. I mean, it seems in our lifetime, this has just intensified, isn't it? When you speak to generations mm -hmm. gone by, you speak to your parents, speak to your grandparents... Wasn't even a, wasn't even a consideration, a mind, mindset, winning mindset. We just cracked on with life. Yeah, but then I also think that what that, that that that's almost like a bit of a survivor's mentality. You know, like you get like people that go oh, back in the day, it was you know it was a tough school and things like that. But what that doesn't account for is there was there was an awful lot of casualties of people that maybe didn't survive in that environment because it was brutal. You know, like almost too brutal. That it, that so. Sometimes you have to be careful of like survivor syndrome of the people that survived that school telling you that it was better back in the day mm -hmm. when there'd have been plenty of people that would have found it intolerable and probably mm -hmm. did. You know, like you hear about like, like some of the old rugby league guys that you'd mm -hmm. meet from the 70s and things like that and they say, oh, it was better back in the day. But <laughs> like, they've, like physically, they wrecked because <laughs> there wasn't the same duty of care and attention given to these guys and I think everyone's there's a lot more labels now mentally you know you you go to school and you know if you wasn't as intelligent as someone else you'd just be on you know the thick table back in the day but now you know they're not thick they're artistic or dyslexic it's not the <laughs> yeah, so they've yeah. labelled people mm. and, and we've Come on, Lords, in the last probably 10 years. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, um, and society will always wear rose-tinted glasses. That's not going to change. Yes, yeah, that's very much what we do. It's that hindsight thing that we're great mm. at looking back and saying, oh, it was better back in the day. Yeah. And, I, and, and I'm often, like, just as we were talking about projecting forward, um, it's dangerous to say, oh, this new generation, I think, projecting backwards as if it was better then. Like, give me, I was in Argentina last year with a team who... And, uh, I walked in the room one, uh, one evening and I said, what's it? And they were all sat round in a darker room watching Love Island. This is the Argentina football team? Yeah, and it, it was the Scotland rugby guys. Okay, yeah. and, and my first instinct was, like, when I understood what Love Island was, because I thought it's not aimed at my generation and yeah. things like that. And don't I, get working stuff on Love Island. No, but, <laughs> but, but my first instinct was to go, what about these lads do? And then, and then you step away and go, you know what? They're all sat in a communal environment. They're all watching TV. They, yeah. They're laughing. They're joking about something that they, it's a shared experience. So you go, that's actually a really good thing. It doesn't matter what, the, what the it is they watch it. <laughs> yeah. The concept of them all sat together as a team, enjoying a communal experience is valuable. And I think we need to be careful sometimes of then going, oh, this snowflake generation, the millennial generation, mm -hmm. where you go, the, I think there's things that are going to be Con uh, constant the idea of wanting to belong to a group, wanting to feel valued, wanting to feel psychologically safe, not be hammered for differences. That's going to be that their universal concepts that will go through generations that were there back in the day and will be there in the future as well. And do you think self awareness is perceived as soft? Often, in, in yeah. A modern sporting sense. Yeah, yeah, very much not because sports, it's. Is it? in, in life. Yeah, yeah, because again, it's easy to you know to reflect on something and think like. Like, I often think the last bastion of, of, um, of the dickhead is when I hear people excuse banter. And they go, it's banter, mate, it's banter. And I often think whenever I hear that used, it's often used by a small group of people, targeted. It's an insecure attack. Uh, yeah, it's an insecure attack because I, I, like, often it's not amusing. It's something personal that's dressed up. And, and that then, was what your sports was about pre-World Cup, the, the banter and getting away with basically bullying of being a prick and then putting the banter label on it and that was one of the best things how the group came together because there was no there was there was banter but there was no dickheads yeah that's it and, yeah, it, and yeah, we found a perfect balance and if you speak to anyone on that world cup tour in in 17 that was the the overriding emotion everyone got on best mates yeah
Yeah, one, very much. One thing that fascinates me in the, in the winning mindset is, um, and I'll go into this with Go another Stephen Hawking quote is that number four for the, for the day John I'm not quite sure I know you actually love quotes uh, but he also it's a short one he, he also said that, that life would be tragic if it weren't funny and, and think how true that is and just think that this, this revolving ball that we're on this fire ball with a, a thing called a sun which is uh, apparently getting closer and close to us that could kill us at any day and we're all here just trying <laughs> to behave any, normally any on, a, on a spinning sphere <laughs> the, the concept is quite strange uh, but fun, fun, fun is the chapter in, in The Winning Mindset or a, a segment in The Winning Mindset. And, and within it, it says, on average, a child laughs 400 times a day um, compared to your adult who averages 15 laughs a day. So what's happened to those 385 other laughs? How important is humour uh, as a characteristic then when, um, you know, potentially you don't have that? Things are tragic, as Stephen Hawking said. Well, humour is about connecting different ideas, so it opens up your brain, and that's where creativity comes from. To make somebody laugh as, uh, has to be um, two separate ideas connecting, So, which is what you're getting people thinking. and So it's incredibly valuable within that working environment. People feel safe when you're laughing. You know, there's this idea, and it's a communal experience. So it goes back to all the things of a healthy culture. You belong in... There's a shared experience, you're all in it together. There's a, a certain level of vulnerability. But it can also be a cage for people's insecurities. Humans. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the banter thing of taking the piss out of somebody for something that they can't afford. So it's not that humour isn't valuable, but it's that, well, it's that delicate line that if I'm laughing at something that you can't help or that you can't influence or change, there's something there that's that, uh, that then you're tapping into somebody else's vulnerability. So what you create... So I'll give you an example. That, like many years ago with one of the rugby league clubs I worked at, there was a physio that was there. And it crossed the line several times in terms of the way this guy was treated. And, and people had excused it as banter. But it was bullying of this guy that went on in terms of phoning him up at night and sending some of the young lads in with bogus claims and things like that. And in the end, this physio was, uh, was removed from the job at the end of the season. I remember saying to the coaches... It's a dangerous game you're playing because if you're a young apprentice coming into that squad for the first time and you're seeing a bloke getting bullied that maybe is a little bit out of his depth, there's an unconscious message you're sending there of, what do I do if I don't know what to do? Do I put my hand up and admit ignorance or do I just feign and keep my head down and hope that nobody spots that I'm out of my depth? Which is what happens, you just remove that sense of safety. So whenever that happens, I always think, people responsible in that environment need to get on it mm. incredibly quickly. That's what you mentioned, Kev, earlier, isn't it? Of, you know, not, of, of disguising that, disguising your, your willingness to go into that world because of the uncertainty behind it. Definitely. And, and, and Wayne Bennett's been the best coach I've, I've ever come across just in terms of his integrity and, and how much he cared for players. Mm. And, and his message was, live above the line. Um, and as soon as you go below the line, you'll be out of the squad. And that was... That wasn't make your tackles and make hard work. That was just being a good person around the group and 24 hours a day. Um, and I think that's why he's, he stood the test of time. The game's changed phenomenally over, what, 40 years he's been coaching. Mm -hmm. But his, his record speaks for itself and it's all about living above that line, being a good person. And, and I know for a fact that there's really, really good players who never made that squad because of the reputation that they had preceding the, the, the squad announcement so and I think that's invaluable if you've got a good group of people you can go a long way but you only need a couple and it becomes cancerous yeah. and spreads well, like David said it's a people we're in a people industry aren't we yeah essentially you know good people and, and living the right way and, and and you know essentially if your team's made up of good people you're in a good spot aren't you it's the yeah. recruitment of those people and understanding and identifying those people it's a challenge and I'll go back to when I first met Damien in 2006 because he was talking about this sort of a bullying culture mm -hmm. and when I look back now my first sort of three or four years at St Helens it was it was a bullying culture that we had mm -hmm. it was ruthless it was um it was a lot of that banter before it was labeled banter yeah. uh was dished out and I always remember we were sat on a bus we used to get on the bus and in Manly yeah. and as people came on the bus you know the the, the sort of the St Helens lads would pop up dish some abuse out and drop down again. And that was just our way, that was normal for me. And it's probably, Damien was the first person that 
made me realise at that time that that wasn't normal. I remember we had a conversation, <laughs> yeah. but you, you found that quite interesting, didn't you, to observe? Well, it was intriguing, wasn't it? Because what I could see was people would sort of like, you could see them brace themselves to walk past and say, Ellen's a bit of the bus. Yeah. And you go, that can't be healthy. Or mm -hmm. like you'd see some guys at, at Wince when there was a comment made, wouldn't they? Yeah, it might yeah. be something about having a big nose or mm -hmm. like not having enough hair or something. And it was something that you go, why would you want to create an environment where one of your teammates... But was from a distance. Oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Well, I'm talking yeah, in yeah, a very no, tight no, no. It was it literally like, like just walking past the bus. But, but it's interesting because it ties into what we just said about that anonymous nature, of, you know, shouting that abuse, but no one knows that that's come from... Yeah, well, throwing our voices. Yeah, well. no, yeah, no, it wasn't that, was it? But, 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 then, so it, it, but what was interesting was it was when the settlers as would do it when mm. they were all sat together. Yeah, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? As opposed to if it was just one lad sat on his own making a comment, you go, well, you're taking your chances yeah. there that somebody might deal with you. But when there was a rump, and, and these were all guys that were well respected, like core group of the yeah. team as well. So it wasn't like. They were vulnerable squad players. Secu These were, security in the collective. It was together. it was that pack mentality, yeah, yeah. and it's like we, you're excluding people from the pack as they walk past. Yeah. We was having a joke about this at the weekend, uh, Blake Austin, and and yeah. he was he was getting some banter off Chris Hill, and he said, I heard about this the other day. Uh, it was Gary V who was speaking about it, and he's a big social media, and he was saying if you wanted the biggest skyscraper in New York, you can either build yours bigger, or you can knock the biggest one down. And he said, Illy, that's what you do all the time. You're trying to knock everyone down to promote yourself. And I think that was a bit of joking in it. And Illy's not, he's always like... Is that a disclaimer? Is that what Al-Qaeda did? a good captain and he's not a self-promoter. But there is people out there who, who feel the need, they're insecure themselves. Yeah, yeah. So to build themselves up, they'll put, other, they'll put shit on other people. I was saying about, I did that book um, on Barcelona, looking mm -hmm. at culture. And... One of the, there was a fascinating quote that Guardiola had given that when he came in, he got rid of um, Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldinho, mm -hmm. uh, Deco, and, uh, and, uh, and Eto. And one of the things he'd said is because their behaviours were falling below the line. So there was a brilliant stat around Ronaldinho that one of his, quote, uh, one of his teammates that I interviewed said he'd be tired from playing, he just didn't tell anyone. So for 18 months, he was living the life of a playboy. And in that same period, 10 out of the 23 players in the squad separated or divorced from their partners mm -hmm. and a number of them were caught in sort of compromising situations partying with him so when um, when Guardiola came in he got rid of the three of them and said let's start again and he recruited four guys um, Pedro Busquets came up through the youth academy he brought in Mascarano and Piquet and what I found a quote in the Catalan press that he gave where he said he recruited them on the basis that they didn't have stupid haircuts, fancy, uh, sleeve tattoos, or wear earrings. Which you go, well, that's a fascinating thing for, to talk about in modern football. Mm. But his argument was, he, was, he said, I've got no problem with any of those things aesthetically, but I was looking for something around the identity of these people. And I, and I was looking for how they made decisions when nobody else was watching. And I wanted people that didn't want to stand out in a crowd. I wanted people that wanted to fit into a group because mm -hmm. their influence... Was, so then you talk about, the, that, there's that quote, or that line, that word in there, identity. So you say, when you make a decision, you do things through one of two criteria. Sometimes you'll make a decision based on cost versus benefit. You'll say, is this worth my time to say something to hit? To, so say like you're in the gym and you see somebody leaving the weights lying around. And you might make a decision and go, is it really worth my time to tell him to pick those weights up? Is he likely to kick off? Is it really that important? I could do it. So you do it cost versus benefit. Or another way you do it is you go, what sort of person am I? What's this situation? What would somebody like me do in this situation? And that's when you make a decision based on identity. So I'm not bothered whether we have a row. I'm not bothered if you don't like me. It offends me that you're leaving those weights behind. And if you get enough people that act through identity rather than cost versus benefit, that's where you start to move a group along. So just, just going on that, like um, I've captained a couple of clubs and I've always thought, you know, you've got to choose your battles. Um, you know, if you if you pick up on everything, you come across as a bit of a... Do you, do you know, do you, you get what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, you just much. become over the top. Um, and what, where's the line in sort of... Because that annoys everyone, leaving weights out, but, sure. you know, just leaving a water bottle on the floor. But if I did it, you know, every time, put your bottle up, you, you'd end up like a school teacher and they'd be like, 
when you needed to send a message that you know you really needed yeah. everyone to follow. So that's always been on my mind consciously when I have captain sides. Well, then sometimes the best it's a brilliant question. So then sometimes it's where you, where you're impacted. Well, f well, first of all, you need to identify what the rules of the game are. So if you've not identified that one of the things you will do, so say you talk about discipline in your team, you say that's going to be one of our trademarks, discipline. Yeah, and you agree that everyone signs up to it and says, when we're at our best, we're a disciplined team. So somebody leaving weights out now, that transgresses the rule that everyone signed up to, the behavioural rule, that we would be disciplined, so then you can address it. Whereas if you haven't agreed that discipline is a rule and you say it, somebody goes, oh, I didn't sign up to that. Yeah. that it offends you. And there's a chapter in me. ambiguity is the enemy. Yeah, so, if, so you need to strip the ambiguity to then say, if we've agreed that, I'll challenge you until you start doing something different. Yeah. So there's a great example of the Barcelona one that, that they spoke about this idea of humility. Don't come in here showing off your wealth, your privilege, your status. Come in here and be humble. And then there's a young guy who makes his debut for them, scores a goal and starts doing a samba dance. And the captain comes over and clips him around the ear and stops him and then comes out in the press conference afterwards and issues an apology to the opposition. And his point is... We don't do that kind of thing here. We're not trying to embarrass the opposition. We're not behaving... You don't do elaborate samba dances. You score your goal and you go back. You don't try and humiliate the opposition. So, and everybody signed up to it because we've all signed up to being humble. So when he transgresses it, we can deal with it and everyone accepts it's, it's justice being applied. So, so what I'd often say is the danger is if you've not agreed the behaviours, you challenging people then becomes... Well, Kev's moaning again. Sort of counterproductive, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a bit, I think there's a big pressure on sports. For me, it's all about recruitment. It's, it's professional sport is all about recruitment. Mm. And you can influence a, cult, like, influence a team that are made up of the wrong people. Don't, I know you can do that. You can. You can change things. But ultimately, the most fundamental concept in, in our sport is, is recruitment. You know, yeah. understanding what you need and then getting those people is, is massive. And if you don't understand what the behaviours look like and what you want, what the end goal is, what the product is, then you know, how do you even go about recruiting somebody? Yeah, I, I think that, and, and again, see, I think rugby league's a fascinating sport for that because I think we, whilst recruitment is important, you don't have the churn yeah, that yeah, yeah. other sports have, you know, yeah. like the, the wealth isn't there to just pay somebody off and move them on. So I think the important uh, recruitment becomes even more paramount then. So if you're going to only get two or three shots at it, you want to make sure you've got the right people that you're bringing in. Um, I, I remember at Warrington years ago when Tony Smith had first come in and some of his recruitment was based on, on people that not necessarily were good players but were vocal that would stand up and challenge yeah, yeah. some of the accepted practices. Mm -hmm. But you have to know what the behaviours you want are before you do, because otherwise people make excuses, oh, he's a good player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you go, but he's toxic. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? He's good cause that. In sport, that's so common, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember. Competency I'll, on the field is, is, is well, assumed well, as competency well, often. I remember doing some work years ago at, um, at, at West Brom, and they recruited, at the time, Nicholas and Elka. And, ever, and it didn't work out, and everyone went, oh, it's because of him. And you go, actually, it wasn't. But everyone went, oh. So he came in, and he was like the ultra professional so he was quite quiet self-effacing just got on with the job but what nobody had taken into account was there was four French African lads that were already a part of the squad and Anelka came in and we were talking about these cultural architects he was the daddy of the French Africans because of his technical and his career and one of the social activities was the players used to meet for breakfast every morning in the staff canteen and Anelka had come in realised that he was a strict Muslim he didn't prepare the food um, in the manner that he wanted, so he used to go and eat somewhere, like eat in his hotel, and then come in fa like a bit later and go straight to the dressing room to get changed. And what happened was, over time, the other four French African lads started to gravitate and go and get changed with him and stop going for breakfast. And nobody said anything until it started going wrong, and then everyone went, "Oh, there's a clique here," <laughs> and they blamed him for it. When you go, well, the problem had happened a lot earlier than that, yeah, rather than say, <laughs> "Yeah." So people often, it's that hindsight bias again, that yeah, afterwards yeah. everyone it's an Elka that's a problem, when the reality was, he Sounds was, well. yeah. There David, was it's always fascinating to, to have you in. We could talk for hours, can we? We really could. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. Well, we never know what we're going to get onto. We, we just let it roll and there we go. Um, just finally, I know because I mentioned at the top you had... Go on. 
Muhammad Ali, Tiger Woods, Sir Alex yeah, Ferguson, Sarim McGeekin, who's on the front of the winning minds that think simple and effective ideas about how to improve performance. What's the, the best accolade you've had, the most sort of one you, I'm asking which book you're most proud of at the top. But... <laughs> oh, wow. That's on your wall, you can get it printed. Yeah, it. I'm working out in the gym. My walls are clear. Ali's got me up there, hasn't he? What did he say? He must have said something. I went out to Atlanta to go and interview him. And it... I would say it was better, that, like, it sounds better than it was because he was obviously in quite poor health. So, um, I, like, he got tired quite easily and it was sometimes quite difficult to, uh, to understand this stuff. But um, he liked the common sense nature of it. I think he, he'd always been interested. He was a pioneer of psychology in sport without necessarily knowing what he was doing. I think he was marrying it up. I don't know. I, I think sometimes it's the quieter qualities where people just quietly tell you that you've helped rather than anything um, that sounds too too highfalutin. Mm-hmm. Well, top man, really appreciate you. No, no, in. thank you. Kev, Thanks great for to see me. you. Uh, don't forget, you can download Out of Your League at uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, Podbean, Spotify. Watch us on YouTube. Get in touch at Super League. Use the hashtag Out of Your League. Uh, we'll see you again next week. And I think it's fair to say, as many um, self help books that John Wilkin reads, he's still going to be. A massive knob. Good night.